0: All right, so it's a Sunday, and I'm in the Stereo Embers, the podcast studios. Here's where we are. Politically, things are a mess. There's a global pandemic. California is on fire. And now Walter Lohr is dead. I started this podcast a few years ago, and Walter Lohr was one of my earliest guests. And I really liked him. We talked about punk rock, and we talked about Proust. Why? Well because Walter Lure was as much of a scholar as he was a punk. And in between that, he was a stockbroker. The guy had layers. I loved chatting with him because it felt like there was nothing he wouldn't talk about. Super cool guy. And still playing great, still singing great, and remaining as vital artistically as ever. Walter was 71. From what I understand, he was diagnosed with cancer in July, so his battle was brief. But his music... His music is eternal. Look, the podcast has changed over the years, and my introductions are shorter, much shorter. I know you're all relieved about that. But I'm rebroadcasting this one in its entirety because Walter's sendoff deserves a lengthy introduction. So, have a listen and say goodbye to Walter Lure. Then, grab as much of his music as you can and play it as loud as it will go. I'm Alex Green. And this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out.
1: But the crowds, they all go nuts. They should have killed us all in the sun and the dust, They just don't got the guts. Crazy kids, crazy kids. Crazy kids, we don't know what we
0: want. Taken from the album Wack-a-Lack-a boom boppa Loom-Bamboo. <laughs> God, I sound so stiff saying that. That's Crazy Kids by Walter Lure and the Waldos. The band's namesake, Walter Lure, is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Walter Lure. You're only 29, still got a lot to learn. And when your business dies, it will not return. So sang Johnny Rotten in the song 17. Now, I know 29 sounds like a young age to be washed up. But think about it like this. When punk rock was new, everybody was young. And because it was a music whose velocity and spirit were emblematic of youth itself, it was easy to see why punks saw their time as fleeting. And they had a good point, but they weren't exactly right. I'll get to that. But first, let's talk about the post-punk plan. What I mean by that is the post-punk plan career plan. It seems when it comes to this subject, there were two camps, those who had a plan and those who didn't. Now, punk rock has always burned brightly, and there were some in punk bands who had the foresight to see that that light wasn't going to last forever, while others just weren't paying attention or purposely were ignoring the imminent burnout. Why am I talking about this? Because some punks had plans, and those plans required schooling. Notable punks like Bad Religion's Greg Graffin and The Descendants' Milo Ackerman both got their degrees while in their respective bands. A little-known fact is that Sterling Morrison of The Velvet Underground did the same thing. He's not quite a punk. He's pre-punk, which is punkish enough for this conversation. In the case of Milo Ackerman, The Descendants put a record out that outed their singer's academic life. The title of that record? Milo Goes to College. So it wasn't uncommon for punks to pursue higher education, either during or after their band's career. But what wasn't so common was already having that degree before getting into the band, which brings us to Walter Lure. When Walter Lure joined the Heartbreakers in 1975, he'd already gotten his college degree and he'd already been working. By joining the Heartbreakers, Lure's graduate work would be far from the ivory tower and taking place instead in the deepest, darkest dens of punk rock depravity. Let me explain. Oh, the Heartbreakers were trouble. Made up of former New York dolls Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan and rounded out by ex-television singer Richard Hell, the Heartbreakers were a kind of punk rock supergroup from the start. Lure, who'd been with a band called The Demons, was the fourth guy to jump aboard the ship. They were a positively ferocious outfit. Pioneers of the first wave of punk rock, the Heartbreakers were raw and feral, and you couldn't take your eyes off of them. But remember the thing I told you about bright lights not lasting forever? In the case of the Heartbreakers' first incarnation, it didn't even last a year Thunders and Hell clashed, and Thunders bailed. Realizing they had to choose between the two, Nolan and Lure went with Thunders. I suppose you could say they probably thought they were walking away from Hell, but far from it. They were actually walking right into it. Bassist Billy Rath replaced Hell, and the Heartbreakers were good to go. The new lineup made their debut at Max's Kansas City, in the summer of 76, and the show was a glorious barrage of lippy swagger and sloppy punk rock bliss. Now, former New York Dolls manager Malcolm McLaren was then managing the Sex Pistols, and he reached out to the Heartbreakers to see if they wanted to open for the Pistols on the upcoming Anarchy Tour. What could go wrong? Well, pretty much everything. It was a planned 19-date tour to promote the band's new single, Anarchy in the UK, but for reasons best outlined in John Savage's England's Dreaming, only a handful of the dates were played. And that's where the trouble began. Because the sex pistols were a new and inflammatory presence, sometimes the bands were told gigs were canceled only hours before they were supposed to start. So. The Heartbreakers and the Sex Pistols traveled the country in good faith, but they spent more time in hotels and train stations, bored out of their minds, than they ever did on stage. And let's just say this. Bored Heartbreakers were bad Heartbreakers. They spent their downtime getting drunk, doing drugs, and generally just screwing around. But this was a very important moment because it was when the UK fell in love with the Heartbreakers, and the Heartbreakers fell in love with them right back. Even though the band had only played a handful of shows around London, they had developed a rabid following there. But the Heartbreakers had another thing following them, a bad reputation. And it was a bad reputation widely associated with reckless hedonism and heroin. Under the you-can't-make-this-shit-up category, the band's first and only album, LAMF, came out on the UK label Track Records. A name whose punful significance surely wasn't lost on the Heartbreakers. Because of addiction and disorganization, the Heartbreakers were a literal and logistical mess. They broke up in 78, reformed in 79, broke up again, reformed in 82, broke up again, reformed again in 84, broke up again, and reformed yet again in 1990. But after 1990, there would be no more resurrections. Johnny Thunders died in 1991 in a hotel room in New Orleans. Jerry Nolan died a year later of a stroke while being treated for pneumonia and meningitis. And Billy Rath left music, got clean, and he went to college, getting a degree in psychology and a postgraduate degree in theology. Sadly, he died in 2014 at the age of 66, leaving Walter Lure as the last heartbreaker standing after thunders and nolan died lure stayed at it in 1994 he recruited a couple guys and they put a record out as the waldos the record was called rent party and it was very well received but if you wanted to sum up walter lure's career trajectory at this point you could pretty much say this he went from being a punk rocker to being a stockbroker it's true after the Heartbreakers, Lure got clean, dusted off his degree, and started to work on Wall Street. There were forays back into music, but that wasn't how Walter Lure was making his living anymore. Now, Lure is a widely respected guitar player. Many don't know this, but he played on three Ramones albums. 1983's Subterranean Jungle, 1984's Too Tough to Die, and 86 Animal Boy. And people were always trying to recruit him for a musical project, but... Walter Lure was busy with the stock market. In other words, he had to get up early. Now, I'll let Lure tell you how a Proust-loving English major got into punk and finance. But before I do, I'll tell you this. The Waldos are back, and the band's new album is a riveting blast of punk rock glory. From the searing stomp of Damn Your Soul to the speedbag New York Dolls punk of Wham Bam Boo, the Waldos' sophomore album is a killer. As for the Heartbreakers, well, they were great, (laughs) but in many ways, they underachieved. They were scrappy and charismatic and wild and untamed, and that's exactly what punk rock is supposed to be. Did they burn out? Sure. But when they did, Walter Lure had two degrees to fall back on, the one he got from college and the one he got by standing on stage next to Johnny Thunders. Enjoy my chat with Walter Lure. Right here, on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: Now We've been on, on the recovery from the financial crisis since 2008, or 2009 was the bottom of it. So this is like, it's getting along in the two. So something eventually is going to happen that that's going to make a big correction. Um, probably, if not this year, then definitely next year. Um, it, it, you know, the thinking. You know, when you read the financial books, it's like it's all over the map. But you know, the idiot in the White House could, uh, could do something. You know, like stupid, like start a war or something like that, which, or or, or something worse, which would uh could cause a crash. But um, I don't know. You know, there's any sort of things that could happen. Now the economy is doing well, but the economy was doing well before the financial crisis too, and all of a sudden it blew up. Are you
0: uh, are you still active in on Wall Street?
2: No, I retired from you know a regular job like like three years ago. So um, now, I, I mean, I keep up with, with, you know, the financial stuff. I read the papers when I trade and, and what like that, but that's all for my own account. Um, it's like, you know, so I'm just retired now. All I do is like, you know, apart from, you know, the, the gigs here and stuff like that, I, I play a lot of tennis and, and jog and, and I play golf and stuff like that. That's I
0: it's interesting, you know, I, having grown up in the 80s, I, you know, I, I I noticed there were two kinds of punks. There were the punk rockers who were lifelong punk rockers like they that was their lifestyle and that's how they were gonna they were gonna go down that way and live that way forever and then there were these sort of like punks that were kind of like almost like I don't want to say visiting <laughs> but they always had another plan uh, a lot of them sort of like had planned to either go back to school or they were um, you know secretly studying uh, and they, they never planned on staying in the game um, as long as 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 many others did were you, in terms of, you know, when you're sleeping on people's floors, when you're living the punk rock lifestyle, did you always have an exit plan?
2: No, I never really had an exit plan because, I, I mean, before I, I joined the Heartbreakers, I, I, I used to, I I worked as a chemist for the Food and Drug Administration because I had some, I had, I had like a minor degree from college. So I could get a job, you know, I, I had a decent job, but then I had to quit when, when we moved over to London. Um but i i i never knew anything about finance cuz you know my my college degree was all about like literature and and some science stuff so i just happened to look into the wall street thing i you know i wanted to play music as long as i could but it just became financially unfeasible I, I was back to living you know with my with my father at a certain point plus being strung out and everything you know like that you had just i just had no money whatever money i got i would spend on drugs or whatever, so it just became sort of non. Uh, I couldn't function as a musician anymore because I wasn't getting enough gigs to, uh, you know, to to survive on. So, I just happened to look into this thing. My father, who, who was a retired banker, <coughs> a retail banker, knew a, a friend of his who worked in in the same bank in, in Citibank, who had retired also, but had taken up a, a a a job with this computer company that would go into these major banks that would handle a corporate takeovers and mergers um, where more or less <clears throat> thousands of shareholders who had stocks in a certain company that was being taken over had to send their stock certificates into this bank, a transfer agent, they call it. And, and they were like a lot of the big banks, Chase, Citibank, Chemical, and you know, have them are gone up, but whatever. <clears throat> so this company that I joined through my father's friend, um, we would go in to, to these big banks, and as the stock certificates would come in, we'd add them all up and calculate who got what and uh, uh, under whatever the terms of the merger or takeover was, whether it was, it was, it was, it was going to be cash or stock or new bonds or warrants or whatever. So <clears throat> this company tallied all that stuff up and put it into the computers, and the bank just issued the checks or, or the new stocks. So <clears throat> this went on for a few years. I started out as a temp, and... I just started learning about you know about the whole inside. I I didn't know anything about finance, and then um, then they hired me because they liked me. I guess I took a liking to it. I was still going out and getting high at lunch every day. So if you dig it, I don't know how they ever hired me, but regardless, I must do the job halfway decent. So I had this jekyll and hyde existence. i you know once you know, to this day one side of my closet is all suits and ties. Someone had to wear suits and ties on Wall see. And the other side is all the band clothes and your ripped up t-shirts and ties and jackets and all that like that. So, um, so then after a few years of this place, I jumped to a brokerage front, to, to a real brokerage firm, not just, uh, you know, that, that this computer firm that, that specialized in this one aspect of the business. And that's where I really started because then I learned there's, you know, tons more of, of aspects of the business that, that I, I, I knew nothing about, you know, apart from corporate takeovers, also the trading. And, um, Legal items, you know, different products, you just buying and selling and stuff like that. So, it, the world of finance, I found out, and as I got off drugs, which I did in the late '80s, um, I wrote, I got I got better at it because I, I was more concentrated, and my boss took a liking to me. So, you know, I, I started working my way up the ladder, and by the mid '90s, I was making three and four hundred grand a year in charge of like 125 people. But at the same time, still playing gigs on the weekends or certain weeknights and stuff like that. So it was like this uh, this thing. But it really took off, and and I sort of got interested because there was there was so much I I had never known about the world of finance, and it just like you know sort of blew my mind. It was just like it's ten times bigger than than the music industry. Maybe not as much fun, but at least there's a lot more money (laughs) to be made anyway. Yeah. Uh, So that's what I I sort of looked into it and got good at it and kept doing it. But at the same time, I kept I kept playing music as well. So it's sort of like um, yeah, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, whoever you want to look at. It.
0: Well, at least there was balance there, I, I suppose.
2: Well, it was sort of schizophrenic. <laughs> at least, yeah, the one side of the personality also at the other, and like it, it it helped me get off drugs. I guess in the late '80s. I mean, I worked for maybe five or six years still on drugs. You know, getting high every other day and what like that. But I finally got off it, and as soon as I got off, then all of a sudden I started rising up in the industry, or in the company, one like that. So, um, yeah, it it it, it was, that's, it is sort of a, it helped me get straight, I suppose.
0: Do you blame the music industry for getting into drugs in the first place?
2: No, I blame me. You no, know, actually... <laughs> um, yeah, because I didn't really do drugs before I joined the Heartbreakers. I mean, I I had tried them in college. You used, used to take a lot of acid and LSD, and I tried heroin once. So we got snorted and stuff like that. But I wasn't really into drugs at all until I got into Heartbreakers. And then all three of them were shooting up in front of me all the time. So I said, like, oh, I, I gotta, I'm going to have to try, try this or something like that. And, and it was this whole, you know, you're part of the the outlaws and stuff like that, the, the underground, you know. And it became—it was actually stupid, but um, it, it was like the thing to do. And I, it was more or less get into the lifestyle, and you think you're cool and getting high, and and then you just realize you're stupid. But it, it takes a while to pay the pay the price for it to get out of it.
0: I mean, but, I suppose um, joining a joining a band with Johnny Thunders is like swimming with sharks. I mean, he was he was pretty varsity, uh, you know, darkness. He was he was living a hard life.
2: Yeah. Well. Th- yeah, in the beginning, they were—you know—they're all doing it like hell, and 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 Johnny and Jerry, they were all on and stuff like that. They had been on for probably a year or two or something like that. It started in the Dolls, and Aditi Ramon would hang out with us too because he was on dope, and and that's how we got Chinese rockers. He gave to us. The Ramones didn't want to do it because they didn't want to sing um, songs about drugs. So, we. They were already doing it. I I had never shot up a needle before, stuff like that, but then I'd, I'd watch them do it a few times, and they would, they'd be giggling. and said, oh, we better watch out. Walter might want to try it sometime. Well, boss, I said, okay, I'll try it sometime. What the hell of it? And so I did, and then slowly, of course, it, it, it starts taking over. But um, they in the beginning, they weren't that bad. I mean, we could go a couple of days. Uh, you know, Johnny and Jerry could go a few days without the stuff, without dying or screaming or something like that. Later on, it became like... You know, we couldn't go to a gig, or we couldn't uh, uh, go to the recording studio unless we got something, you know, to get ourselves together to get there. Otherwise, we'd be sick, and and, uh, 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 and you wouldn't do anything. But in the beginning, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, they always wanted to get high, but if they didn't have the money, or you know, we were out of town. You just didn't do it, and, and you went on to show. It just you know later on, as time went on, it got worse and worse, which is always the case with drugs. Now, you, where did you go to college? Uh, Fordham University in the Bronx. You went to
0: Fordham. You're a nice college boy who who was, you know, reading literature and living the college life. How did you hook up with the Heartbreakers? And when you did, did you say to yourself, like, "Wow, this is not this is not what I planned on." How did my life go this direction?
2: Well, all right, college was really where it all started because that's when I started playing guitar. Um, I started, it was also, you know, the, it was the hippie days. I I really got into, you know, since, like, I guess it was since high school when the Beatles and the Stones all first came over and stuff like that. I, I I got into the whole music scene and stuff. I didn't play yet. And then in college, I started hanging out with kids, a lot of whom, who, a few, there was this music room in, in, in the campus center that, I don't know, it was, it was fairly big, but it had a huge stereo, and, and you could play records there and stuff like that. So at first you started hanging out there, then you started getting to know the people, and then it becomes like a little click, and we, and we ended up taking the place over because we play most of the records all day. we bring in all the new albums, and I'm also surrounded to all the British stuff that, that was coming over. So I, I, I got in with this gang, and, and then at the same time my younger brother started taking guitar lessons, and he and I had started taking him years ago when I was about 12, but it didn't, you know, the teachers weren't teaching anything. But besides, Mary Had a Little Lamb and Camptown races and stuff like that. So, and it was before the whole, you know, the British invasion and the rock scene. So I gave it up after six months. But once my brother started taking lessons and I was in college, then he would come home from the lesson and show me what he learned. And then I got a guitar. And then these kids I was hanging out in college I said, oh, let's get together and jam, blah, blah, blah. So I said, Okay. And that when you start playing with people, you realize, oops, I didn't. I, I thought I knew, knew a lot more about guitar playing than I did. So that's when I started practicing more and learning and playing. So finally Manacar, we had started this band in college with these guys I, I went to school with. And uh, I think we did the first gig just, just, just before I graduated in the Campus Center. And then we, we started playing a few colleges like, like Manhattan College and a few other colleges up there and local bars. In the Bronx and um, or Brooklyn, you know, you know, wherever we could get the gigs, and then um, I, I was playing with some local bands where I grew up too, out in Long Island. So that was I, I just keep my hand in, and I, I, and finally I decided, well, I, I'd like to do this like more seriously rather than just playing a cover band because because all, all we were doing was playing like Stones and Bowie and you know whatever Yardbirds. Yeah, music that I loved, but it wasn't, you know, you, you were just going to be, you know, like like background music if you kept on playing covers. So I started answering ads and papers that, it, um, it, it was mostly the Village Voice back then, but but they'd have this classified section where they'd send out, you know, people would post, you know, need a guitar player for bam band, blah, 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 must know Stones or, or, you know, or whatever, that, you know, must know Grateful Dead. But so I answered a few, and then I found these guys that I sort of liked. It turns out that, that the guitar player was... The brother of Mark Bell from the from the Ramones, you know the the future Ramones drummer. It's got Freddie Bell. He was a twin brother actually, but but Freddie was a bit wacky. So um, so I played with these guys. The band was called the Stray Cats. We did a couple of gigs in like Staten Island and Brooklyn, and then uh, we got another guitar player because Freddie had to go to work for one of his treatments or something like that. When he's he like get these shock treatments every six months or something. So uh, the other guy, Marty, uh, joined the band, and he was a good guitar player, Martin Butler or Butler or something like that. And then, um, so we did a few gigs, and then uh, Marty knew this guy who was living in Manhattan named Elliot, who was a drug dealer to the Dolls, but he also uh, was a singer, and he was starting a band. So he wanted to get Marty, and Marty recommended that I come along, too. So... Um, this was the Demon. You know, we, we met the guy and then, um, and he was a Coke dealer to so like the Dolls and a couple other bands, but he, he wanted to be a singer so uh, we started the Demons. And then we, and we started doing original music and then uh, we were in, um, we started getting gigs like that. So, at the same time, I had known Johnny for years because I used to see him at every concert that I ever wanted to, uh, uh, that I ever went to at the old Fillmore shows. I even saw him at fucking Woodstock of all places. And, um, so I, I, I sort of knew Johnny just by sight, and he knew me by sight, but we never really spoke to one another. And it turns out that we, the demons that this family star, we were sharing the dolls' rehearsal hall because the dolls are on tour. But it was on their last tour, the the red patent leather tour, and and they let us use their rehearsal hall. So, which was on 23rd Street by the old Chelsea Hotel. So we rehearsed there, and then I met Johnny and Jerry, you know, a few times yeah, at, at rehearsals, and then. We heard that they that Dolls broke up and Johnny and Jerry were back in New York and they got and, and they joined Richard Hell, and they were looking for guitar players. Or they were playing as a three-piece, but they were you know scouting out of the guitar players. So, at the night of the Demons' first show, which is at the 82 Club, or Club 82, you know, um, Johnny and Jerry managed to show up, and this was our, this is the first show the Demons ever did. Um, and, you know, Johnny and Jerry are there. And after the show, Johnny pulls me over on the side and says, Oh, don't tell Elliot because because Elliot, the singer, was, you know, I was dealing in drugs. But, you know, do you want to join a band? I'm going, I, Yeah, yeah, sure, why not? So so I had to call for an audition. So, so the following week, I, I met him in some studio in Midtown, and it was Hell, Jerry, and um, and John. And they went through a few of the songs that they had. They had Chinese Rocks and Wanna Be Loved and uh, Blank Generation. So I thought. So I played along, and then um, and that was that. And then I left, you know, after forty-five minutes or something like that. And I I didn't hear anything for like a month or so. So I figured, oh, they must have got someone else or or, or whatever the deal was. I didn't see him, but I didn't hear him. And finally, we had a gig. Um, the the demons had a gig opening up for the three-piece Heartbreakers out in Queens. It was this place in Long Island City, um, called Coventry. So, we went out there. We you know the demons did the gig, and then um. And and the three-piece heartbreakers that played after us, and I noticed that they really did need a a, a second guitar player because Johnny would get thin or he'd make mistakes while he was singing and So you needed something to fill out that you know the uh, the sound in the band. And so after that show, at that night, we're sitting at the bar or at a table near the bar, and Jerry walks up and says, "You know, so Walter, did you like any of the songs that we did in the audition?" I said, "Yeah, I like all of them." So then he finally says, "You know, so you want to join the band?" I'm going, "Yeah, "Yeah, good." So great. So the next, uh, when we had a few rehearsals, and the next, like maybe month, we had our first gig. It was at CBGBs. It was a it was the Fourth of July festival. So. It was also the same night as my last Demons gig, so they were playing the same festival. So Friday night I played with the Demons at around 1 or 2 in the morning um, in front of like 20 people, and it was like, you know, depressing, because I didn't really like the Demons music a lot much either. (laughs) And then the next night uh, we did the Heartbreakers, and the the place, was there was lines around the block. It it was packed to the the, rafters because it was just like... And I'm not sure why it was so packed, because the other Heartbreakers, when they did the three pieces, it wasn't that mob So it, it, it was strange why this festival seemed to be the beginning. But, but, but anyway, all the people, you know, all these, these people there from the Dolls Day and stuff like that, they came to see Johnny, and Jerry, of course, and Hell and, and, and me. And it was like, you know, it was like night and day. And so I remember Chris Stein, a blondie, blondie at the time, was calling me Rookie of the Year because I went from nowhere to, the, to, to one of the biggest bands in New York. And Ace Frehley was there in the audience because Johnny knew him from the Dolls days and stuff like that. Johnny walks up to uh, up, up to me with him, and he's the, uh, he was with this guy who was the ugliest guy I've ever seen. And it turned out it was Ace Frehley without his makeup, because his face is all pockmarked and oh god, it's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. John goes, oh hi Walter, this is Ace Frehley, and said, hello. And i "Oh holy shit, <laughs> I never saw him without his makeup. I never saw him without his makeup before. But so anyway, okay, so they were in the heartbreak and that's how it got started. And it was like uh, this. You know this. It almost seemed like overnight. It wasn't really overnight, but it, it was just this incredible change of uh, of life in me. So here I am in one of the biggest bands in New York. But still, I'm wor- I'm still working. To, you know, as as a chemist and food organizer because you know we're not really making a lot of money. It's like we get gigs and we fill the place up, but you know you know we come home with like a, a couple of hundred bucks. It's not enough to live on. Later on we we'd we make more money, but uh, at the time you know people were. in – you know, it costs like $5 that you, know, you get at the CBGBs or, or Max's or whatnot like that. So um, so this goes on for, oh, God, it was 75 when we did the first gig in, in July of 75. So, so so this is going on. until so the when Hell starts to try to, to take over the band, he gets like, a, you know, he thinks that he should sing all the songs. And he tells Johnny he's only allowed to sing one or two songs a set. So and, and he's he's trying to say that I can't sing anything. So we all just walked out and, you know, leave, you know we just kicked hell out and said, okay, you know, that's it. You know, we getting a new bass player. So um, this was like, I guess, probably that uh, October, November, something like that of the, of the year, you know, when we did the first gigs. <clears throat> so then, you know, we looked around for a while in New York. We auditioned a few different people, and, and we finally get Billy. So now we're in the middle of uh, of 76. But it's still pretty dismal out there. You know, the scene is like, it's it's big in New York, and it might be big in L.A. or the West Coast for, you know, the punk scene. But there's nothing happening in, in the record industry. The only deals that are around are these little shit deals where you have to split um, split all the money with the manager or the record company with these 50-50 deals that, like, Blondie had one of them. Um, the, the Ramones had one in the beginning. Uh, they, they all, you know, they were signing with, like, Hilly of, of CBGBs or Monty Thau. And and then Richard Garda almost signed us up. He had Robert Gordon, and he wanted to sign us up too. But it was a shitty deal with no big advance, and it was just like junk. So we were almost ready to sign with Goddard because you know it was getting frustrating. We didn't have a record deal, and we were playing gigs, and you know we were doing good. But then we get the call. This is November of '76. We get the call from from Malcolm McLaren, who called our manager. At, in the meantime, Lee, Lee Childers had become our manager back in, I guess, this spring of '76. We needed a manager. So Malcolm calls Lee, because he knew Lee from, from the old days, from the Bowie days, or something like that, and says, you know, we, 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 we want to go over there for a tour with the Sex Pistols. And none of us knew, I mean, I hadn't, uh, none of us knew what was going on in England there. I, I think the Ramones had been there before us um, once, but. You know, uh, we didn't hear anything about it. There was no big deal. I had remembered reading an article in the Daily News or something about about six months earlier about some scene that was happening over in in London, and they mentioned like the Sex Pistols and and the Clash and stuff. But it was just like a like a small article in a paper, and 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 you never heard any of the music because they didn't you didn't have the internet and, and the phone, the mobile phones over there, so. All, it was all, you know, our scene was all New York center. We thought we were the center of the world, and I guess the British thought so they were the center of the world, too, as well as L.A. or you know, or whatever you know, was happening out there. So so we had no idea what we were getting into, but we figured, ah, shit, shit, it's, it's, a, it's a decent tour. It's like 26 dates. Um, it's all paid for, plus we make a little money, and, and all expenses are paid, and we get a chance to go to England and see if anything's happened over there. So we said, yeah, and, uh, Lo and behold, you know, the night we land at Heathrow, uh, Malcolm picks us up in a, in a limo and he's got his assistant with him, Sophie, I forget her last name. And Malcolm's all, like, hot and bothered and flustered. He's freaking out that, yeah, you know, I mean, not about us, but, but he's he's literally, like, talking to himself in, in the back of the limo because that was the same day as the Bill Grundy show happened in London. Oh. And, and people were losing their minds. I mean, we had no idea but. You know, because the next morning we get up and every newspaper in the country, it's front page news about these punks who cursed on TV. And we're going like, God, what, is, what are these people getting excited about? It someone says, fuck on TV. I mean, it, it doesn't happen in, in the States that much because of, you know, censorship. But if it did, nobody would really lose their mind. You know, a few idiots would probably say, you know, fine him or something. But it was like these people are losing their mind. There were all sorts of stories that, you know, the people were kicking their televisions in. They were like... Suing, the, they were throwing the televisions out the window and stuff like that. And it was like this uproar, and it went on for of days. Everywhere the pistols went, we are we met for dinner before we left on the tour. So there was like mobs of photographers running around, so it's like, you know, following up the street anywhere we go. And and it was the same in every town that we pulled into on the tour. Of course, the tour was a disaster because of all the, the shock and, and rage that the people feel. At the 26 dates that were booked, we we ended up only playing about six. I think it was. And, and a few of them had had been sort of rebooked after after the the original gigs had had been cancelled by the town because the local towns had the power to shut down concerts there if they, if they think it's offensive they call it they call it the town councils and they would all meet before the show and say oh we can't have this you know this horrible band in our town they didn't bar the Heartbreakers or the Clash or the Dan from playing but we would just you know and we're not going to go play on the, you know play a show without. The pistols because the pistols were the ones who organized the tour and then we were sort of solidarity if you want to call it just you know standing behind them so we would uh, you know we'd all just go to the hotel bar because that was the only bars that were open past eleven o'clock in England and we'd sit there all night get drunk and then go to sleep and the next day we'd go to the next gig and wait for that to get canceled so uh yeah we finally ended up playing a few shows that were, that were cool but it was like. Um, we were, and that was the best time to meet the guys, too, because the Dan's weren't with us, they, uh, they went in a separate van. Why, I don't know. But it was just the Pistols, the Clash, and us on this bus with a few of their you know, their, their roadies and manager team and stuff like that. But, but we all got along great. We, you know, we'd have wrestling matches in the hotel rooms, and we'd be drunk every night in the bars, and, 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 and we'd all have a big laugh. So that's how we sort of made lasting friendships and, <clears throat> like, over the years, uh, with the exception of Rotten. Rotten was funny if you had him by himself. But as soon as there was, there was like strangers around or, or, or reporters or anything like that, he turned to this personality where he had to be like abusive and obnoxious. And from what I understand, he's, he's the same way today. He never got over it, but he's just like, he would you know, turn, flip the switch and become this character Johnny Rotten where he couldn't be even friendly with anyone if, if there were people
1: standing around.
0: Self-identifying as a musician, or did you kind of feel like, well, I got this trump card in my pocket with I've got a college degree, I can always bail out of this anytime I want.
2: No, I was fully intent on becoming a musician and making and leading the life of a musician, becoming famous and making big records and stuff like that. That was where I was looking. You know, I I didn't know anything about finance yet. I didn't have any reason, you know, to, to, to start looking into it yet. So. I, I, I probably could have gone back to Food and Drug Administration. In fact, at one point in the 80s, I did call up um, my old boss, but they weren't hiring or something like that. But it was—it was like uh, because I, I was strung out. But it just turned out, you know, I was intent on becoming a musician and becoming a famous musician and making lots of money that way. It didn't work out. I mean, it, it, it was fun for a while. I, I didn't have to work for five years or like that. But it was just—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's, it's a tough lifestyle because even if you straight and working all the time it's not really steady and um yeah i guess i don't know maybe some people do it better than others something like that but uh with the drugs it just would have got worse and worse uh which it did you know up until a certain point when i finally you know got out of it but it's a, it's a tough life it, it, especially when you have when you're on drugs right? if you're not on drugs it, it's even then it's tough but unless you get a few hits on the or you're playing on tons of uh sessions for different people you know I become the session guy but um no, that's the way it worked out. You know, I just I became you know I I went into finance because there was nothing else for me to do. I couldn't make enough money in music.
0: Your your degree was in literature. Yeah, English. Yeah,
2: yeah. But, but I had a minor in chemistry, so that's how it, I actually started in chemistry. But I got but got sick of it after after two years, so I flipped over to literature. Uh,
0: I would I would think that your your background in chemistry. Uh, when you when you were doing drugs, you must have thought to yourself, "Okay, I know this isn't a good idea." <laughs> I,
2: I know. Uh, the- well, yeah, it, it, it was like that. But the, uh, the thing was, um, you're not thinking like that because basically, I was testing drugs, you know, like pharmaceuticals to to, to, to make sure that they were, you know, a hundred percent the chemical it said they were, and it was like you know not degraded and stuff like that. So it's. It, it, they didn't deal with like the illegal drugs, although someone would slip into the lab every now and then. But that was mostly the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or or, or, the, or the Drug Enforcement Association. The Food and Drug Administration just just polices. I mean, they do a lot of food, but it's mostly imported foods, and they also do like drugs, like pharmaceuticals that either imported or that can be made here, what like that. But but so it was it's a totally different world. But because um, I knew. I knew about drugs. I, I, I took them in college, but but I wasn't really like dependent on. Them. But yeah, it, it, it was it was real dumb to get into it. But it, it, I was just you know going along with the flow of the band, and 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 that's the price you pay. <clears throat> were you
0: um, were, were the other guy? I, I would imagine you were probably one of the only punk rockers at that point with a college degree. I mean, obviously like Sid Vicious and and, and Johnny Rotten and those guys and and Mat. Like, I don't think they they didn't go to school. Maybe they did later, but I mean, obviously not Vicious, but. Um, but did anyone kind of tease you about having been educated because it was so unpunk
2: uh well yeah I didn't really like um you know Johnny would make jokes every now and then in, in lady years you was know, going like uh, i I took two weeks off to to, to to do those um that british and french tour in in eighty four and uh Johnny was you know saying "I said, oh it takes a lot to get you know rock stars off, off Wall Street these days or about, but if you making these stupid little jokes, but they didn't have a clue about what I was doing. Uh, they just stole his money, but um, it was like being educated, I mean, I think there were a few that had degrees. I know, like, those guys, like, talking heads, they all went to college and stuff like that, so um, the Ramones didn't... Uh, the British guys... Matlock might have gone to to college. I'm not sure about him, but but definitely not the Pistols and, and, and the, well, the class. Well, the Clash was sort of... Um, at least Joe Strumble was forever reading political books and stuff like that. He was, he was a loony with that stuff, but... Um, but there were times like, like I was doing this interview with uh, a reporter, I, I forget it uh, the guy's name, but I think it was a melody maker or the enemy over in London, <clears throat> and he's up in my apartment or in the apartment that you know the band had, and I happened to be reading you know Proust at the time, so I had the book on on the table where I'm, I'm interviewing. And the guy looks over and starts scratching his head going, what, you're reading Proust? What is this? Like, and I'm going like, oh, don't tell anyone because the <laughs> kids will desert me on the street. But apparently, you know, people said, oh, it's not that radical to, you know, to, to do that. But it was just like sort of, um, that was the one time where someone actually, you know, saw the evidence of it. But it was... Uh, like I never hit it, but the the people, I, I, I just never really bothered to ask you at all. You know, it didn't really make a difference. So I went to college, but um, it it, it might have meant more over here, over there. It's like the, the schools are different, but um, yeah, you no, know, you no, know, really, have made fun of me for it anything like that. But I know that I remember.
0: And I don't mean to suggest that like you know you have to you you have to go to college to be an intellectual, but I just mean that you you committed yourself to a four year. You know, degree, so you were obviously headed in a certain direction. Whereas uh, people who hadn't were committed to a whole other uh, way of life. So that that's just really fascinating to me.
2: Well, yeah, it, it's true. I mean, I just went to college because it, it was a thing I was supposed to do. My older brother got to college and he graduated right. from me, and um, so it, it was just like that's what you did, and then you get out. And you know, when I get out of college, it, it, it was the middle of a recession. There was no jobs on it. I took a job as a stock boy in a department store, and then I was driving a cab for a few months. And I got a job in the post office, so so the whole college education was useless. But it, of course, it was a bad time for jobs. It was like 1970 in in New York, and it was like a, a recession going on around the country. And I just happened to look into this you know this gig at the Food and Drug Administration because I had gone to the federal office building in Manhattan and applied for whatever job I I thought I could I could um, you know be qualified for. So so that worked out for five years, and then I, and then I quit that to join the Heartbreakers.
0: Do you, do you find that it is? Uh, you know, I, I always think about the rock and roll lifestyle. I always think about living on the road. People who are committed to that life, it it does wear you down. I mean, it it doesn't seem like I always think like punk rock. You know, Henry Rollins' idea of get in the van and and drive around, and and I think that is how you do it. But there comes a point in life where you just can't do
2: that anymore. I mean, it's it's even yeah, no, it, it does. right. It's it's a gruesome way to live because you're not eating right and, and you're traveling. In the U.S. is worse because the cities are so far apart. Where In the U.K., and Europe, it's a little easier. You only to travel an hour or two to get to the next town. But it's just, you know, you, uh, your cycles are all fucked up because you, you eat shit all the time. You're drinking too much. And then you're just like, you know, you're never comfortable. You're, you're sitting in the back of a van for a couple of hours and then, like, bouncing around. And you go to a sound check or back to the hotel, maybe... Sleep for a half hour, an hour, something like that, and then go to the gig. And then, on top of you know taking drugs and the rest of it, it's it's a gross lifestyle. It's a, a, you know to this day, I, I would not want to you know get into that stuff again. I like playing shows, but not like you know twenty shows in a row or something like that in, in twenty different cities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine you you mentioned Joe Strummer, and and Strummer at one point, in his song says, you know, on the road to rock and roll, there's a lot of wreckage in the ravine.
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely too. It's it, it's a grueling lifestyle. And it's no fun. I mean. I guess if you're the Rolling Stones uh, or U2 or something like that, it, you can make it, it at least somewhat comfortable because you're traveling first class or the planes or what have you and um, uh, whatnot. But it's still you're constantly in motion and it's not like you know you can't sit down and get into a routine. All you do is like you know you just like flopping from one town to the next.
0: So now that you have this new album, I mean, tell me like what is the plan? How do you how do you tour this in a way that's humane? and, and good to yourself. <laughs> you
2: know, how do you, well, yeah, I'm not really looking to do a tour with the band. I mean, Cleopatra might set someone up for me out on the West coast, like maybe a week of shows, like say like, you know, Frisco, LA, Vegas, um, San Diego, you know, whatever they can string together. They have like the guy, Mick Rossi from slaughtering the dogs. He lives out there now. And so he's going to play with me and his booking agent's going to try and put something together. Um, so I can do like a little tour, you know, to help sell it. But uh, there's definitely no way that I, it's too expensive to travel with my New York band to though because it's just too expensive to bring a whole band on the road from New York anyway. So with clear path that they can arrange it, and you know, let those guys that are that that already live out there, they can learn the music, and then they'll go on the road with us. But it'll just be for like a week or so, a month. I'm not doing like a three-month tour or something like that. It's not really worth it.
0: How do you see yourself now as a musician do you Do you find that you are a better player now than ever? Do you find there is an economy to the way that you work that maybe wasn't there before uh,
2: in some in some aspects I've gotten lazier over the years like i got like I don't practice as much as I used to I used to practice like like for hours a day every day but 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 these times it you just get sort of lazy I mean, like I had to get together to record the last album and stuff like that, and then I'll, you know, I'll spruce up the gigs. But the gigs, you know, I play in New York like once every other month or so, and then you know we might get the odd gig out west or uh, uh, Japan or England, and that's just me going like doing my Chuck Berry routine where people learn the songs. It's a backup band in, in every country usually, that and I, 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 I we'll play a few shows. So. It's sort of relaxed. It's. I mean, it's not. I'm not looking to be like a like a famous superstar or something like that. Because it's like it's already too late for that. And it's sort of. I'm not sure if I'd, if I'd want all the. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the attention and and, uh, and 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 touring for, for that matter. But I. You know, it's fun doing the album. It was it, it was good that we got the album done and, and was out. And then um, you know, I'll do a little bit to, to promote it. But it's um, it's like. I'm like uh, 69 years old, so it's not gonna. I'm not gonna go on the road for three months.
0: <clears throat> uh, do you think that that the idea that being, because it's been a long time, but 24 years since.
2: Is that every last right? album? Yeah, yeah. Since, since the last like studio album, last one was was released in '93, I think, and then, um, I mean, I've done. There's been some live albums since then, but. Uh, And you know Jungle Records in England keeps on uh, keeps on re-releasing everything. The Heartbreakers ever did twenty times over. But there's been uh, that was the only studio album. Well, actually, no. I did work on a studio album with uh, with some local musicians um, that came out like two or three years ago. It was it was called Last Ditches. It was me and Binky Phillips and the Planets and um, a a guy from Cactus called Randy Pratt and. this guy Bobby Rondinelli who plays with um, say, West and a million other people. They're local musicians who just, um, the one guy's got a studio in his basement stuff like that so I spent like a couple of weekends, well quite a few weekends actually over the over the course of about two years where we just get together a and jam and, and come in with something written or, or half written and we got down and recorded it and that came out like two or three years ago. So that was that was a studio I did, but there was only like like four or five of my songs on there. The other the songs were written by the other guys, but that was sort of a, a side project.
0: How would you describe the the current creative moment for you? Like, what what are you interested in musically?
2: Oh God, not much these days. Uh, there's, I mean, I don't really you know. The problem is, I listen to, to serious satellite radio, like like the Underground Garage and a couple of the other stations, and a lot of that stuff is the oldest stuff. It's not the newest stuff. So, I, I mean, apart from like, I'm not really into hip hop or or, or, or or rap or country music. I mean, there's a few things every now and then I hear that are, that are decent, but um, so I don't really. Uh, I I'll see bands in New York every time, but but more uh, uh, most likely they're just you know hard rock or or throwback bands to the, to the punk days. I have a mess of c d s at home that I always pick up on the road when I go to Japan or out in the West Coast or what like that, and like uh I listen to them, but you times I end up you know dumping them because it's just like screaming loud punk music so it's it's like sort of weird but but yeah, there's no real trends in music that i'm um I'm sort of attached to these days i mean I'll listen to anything at least once, but uh I don't really um apart from you know playing my own stuff, which is you could call it punk rock to me, it's just rock and roll or whatever.
0: You seem like—I uh, mean, I've talked to you now for forty minutes—but you seem like a really nice guy. Have you, have you had an easy time maintaining friendships in this industry?
2: Yeah, yeah, I haven't. I, I've got very few people I got—I I got pissed off with. Um, in fact, none that I can think of in the industry. I mean, there's other people. No, there's not many people that I can think of that, that I've had any rows with that that um, was long lasting. There's a few people that, that I'm not best fans of, you know, certain groups I don't like or certain people, but that that's just normal personality, of course. Not people that I work with or done business with or something like that. But for the most part, I I get along with them. Uh, you know, I get I'll, I'll get into an argument like anyone, get me now and then, but I, I'm I'm rarely the type that's going to start screaming, and yelling, that you know and start the, the posting on social media about, this one's an asshole, that one's an asshole. <laughs> so it doesn't well, work like that.
0: I think it's cool that you that you maintain your relationship with Glenn Matlock.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Glenn's a good guy. That. Although I haven't seen him for like uh, 10 years until we got this thing together last year. Glenn Burke I've seen a few times and um, Mike Ness I'd, I had never met before. But, but Glenn, yeah, when I was in England back in 2009, I think the first time I'd been there in a few years, um, he was in the audience and came on stage and stuff like that, so I kept up with him. And when I was out in L.A., I went. Steve Jones, has a radio show there, so I, was, so I went on, on, on his show and was yapping with him a bit, because I hadn't seen him in quite a few years. Um, yeah, so when I get to England, I run into some of the old guys I used to know, like photographers or people who used to play with us and stuff like that. What about
0: uh, Richard Howe?
2: Okay, Hell is the one guy that I never, you know, after we kicked him out of the band, I never really got along personality-wise. I mean, he tried to get me involved in one or two projects where where he was going to sell some of the tapes that we made with the Heartbreakers, but I just didn't want to get involved because he was arrogant. Um, So I don't really say that many bad things about him. I, I mean, I just meant more or less mentioned to people when they asked me about that. He was hard to work with because he wanted to control her. He wanted to be the main, you know, center of attention and control all the creative. He thought he was a genius, and so it wasn't going to work with Johnny. It wasn't going to work with Jerry. And in the beginning, I didn't really have any, you know, criteria to to fight back. But later on, I said, "I don't need playing with this guy. I don't want to play play as his, his side man or something like that." So it was just, uh, and that's the way his personality is. You know, he was always, you know, thinks he's a genius. So that's. Uh, Fine, That's what he thinks. But I just don't have to like you know be around be around him to to watch it.
0: What was the do you think one of the most misunderstood elements of of Johnny Thunder?s I mean, I think he gets sort of depicted in a certain way. Um, I remember reading an essay about him by Nick Kent, um, where he just literally sounded like he was walking through airports vomiting. I mean, it really was a, a dark portrayal. But what do you think the most what do what do you think it's overlooked about him?
2: First of all, never trust anything they can't ever, ever write because <laughs> he's a fucking idiot. But uh, I was it, it, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about how a couple of times in London, because he'd come and hang out because he thought put the all he, he'd be at, at our flat because he'd go get drugs or something like that. And and he'd be staring in the mirror, and, and I'm sitting in the room, and he's looking in the mirror. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, I think I really look a, a lot like Keith Richards. So I, I, I just see this in me all the time. I'm going like... Like I didn't say anything at any time uh, 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 because he was uh, he was he was getting us drug, but he's like, out of your fucking mind. He, he looked nothing like you, <laughs> but he was just he was in this, this weird ass mood. I mean, it's strange, but um, but anyway, so as far as Johnny, yeah, Johnny could be a, a nightmare to deal with stuff like that. He wasn't like vomiting, and throwing up all the time because you know it, 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 that's just depicted. There were times when he was a wreck and he was like unconscious in the floor like that, but that, you know, it, it was, Johnny was drugs and the funny thing was, when he wasn't on drugs, like in the old days, you know, when he wouldn't have drugs, he would be out on a little tour or something like that, he wouldn't be able to get anything. He was the quietest, most friendliest guy you'd ever want to see. He, he, he wouldn't get loud, he'd be like chumming and smiling and joking and stuff like that. It was only, as soon as he got to drugs, whatever they were, the downs or or speed or, or dope, it would be like, he, he'd turn into this loudmouth, you know, obnoxious idiot. he it was almost like Johnny Genzali was w- w- would turn into Johnny Thunders and become this this loud you know, clown. Although he, now, a lot of times when he was stoned, he wasn't like always obnoxious. He, he, he could be funny and friendly too. But uh, drugs really turned him into the. I guess it was a, a defense for him because he was he was either so shy or something like that when he wasn't on it. But it was just like uh, it turned him into the, this this other person. So that's the only thing I know I I really noticed about John was that he was like. When he wasn't on drugs, he'd be the most meekest, mildest guy you'd ever want to meet. And as soon as soon they got on drugs, then he became this 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 other person or what like that. But with limitations, or with limitations, he wasn't always like like foaming at the mouth and stuff like that. But uh, he could be a, he could be a handful sometimes.
0: Well, you know what's really interesting is that you were saying like Johnny Rotten, he knew how to turn that persona on when people right. came in the room. He knew how to turn that bit. He could activate it. He was in control of it. Whereas Johnny Thunders, he he needed drugs to turn that turn that persona on.
2: More or less, yeah, yeah, it became like, yeah. Johnny wasn't like that you know, without drugs. Like that one, where Rotten, I'm not sure if he ever if because I've heard from like Stephen Paul uh, that Rotten, you know, they still hate him to this day because uh, he became more and more obnoxious. So, so whether Rotten still has the ability to turn it on and off or not, I don't because as I haven't seen him, you know, to talk to since like the '70s. So. I know, he lives out in L.A. I think now, but um, I have no idea whether he kept, he kept that, that switch workable or he just like flipped it permanently in one direction. But yeah,
0: you can you can break that end. you can break the off switch and it just stays on. Sure,
2: sure, it, it, exactly. I know. it, become, it becomes the part that you be, you become it. You what it tell it sort of like.
0: what about you? I mean, when you were doing the drugs, did you find that your personality shifted?
2: I mean, to me, no. I, I, not that I noticed. I mean, maybe other people have, not, have noticed, but I've never really heard of them. I mean, yeah, there were times when I'd be buying stuff at people that I would take stuff off the top of like that, but it wasn't like, you know, I didn't get into robbing people or, 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 or ripping people over stuff that, like a lot of people did. Um, I'd get desperate at times, but, but I was never into, you know, going crazy. Like you know, John would John would pawn people's guitars and stuff like that, and all this—it was just like stupid stuff. But so I don't know. I, I mean, I'd need to to check other people. To me, it was just like I would just become me and so stuff. I thought maybe I'd be—I don't know—I don't remember anything like that.
0: Before I let you go, can you give me a Proust recommendation? What's your favorite? What book would you recommend?
2: Well, he you only know, wrote one really one book. <laughs> the, 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 the the Remembers of Lost Time, or La Recherche de tompeau Perdu, but um, that, that's the only book i read. But the thing is, like, seven volumes over here in, in the one translation of it. The other translation that came out late, about ten years ago, it's three volumes. But I liked all of it. I, I just get into it. It took me, like, maybe three or four years to read because I, I'd read one of the earlier translation by Moncrief was, uh, was I think, Either five or seven volumes, like probably five, I guess. So I would it, it intersperse it out over like, you know, read one and then go to something else and then come back to the next one and stuff like that. But it, it just sort of immersed you in this whole lifestyle and time. I thought it was it was just like, I mean, I like Balzac too. It's about that you know French literature in, in general. But and, and the British. You know, Henry James does some wild things sometimes too. But um, I also read you know other stuff, history or modern writers and whatnot.
0: Well, I like I like Proust because I like the loneliness of the of the the narrative.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, he was sitting in his bed all the time writing the bleeding things. <laughs> I guess it was pretty lonely. Yeah. But uh, but the uh, it, it's I sort of like the, the interactive society and and the way people you know the the words unspoken say more than the words spoken and what like that. It's just like mannerisms and gestures. It's it sort of uh, yeah. It, it to me it, it was just. It sort of opened up this whole other world that that I didn't, you know, really know about. I mean, Balzac did that, too, and so did Henry James to a point. Uh, Certain writers like that, whereas, like, say, Thomas Hardy didn't do it for me, but other ones did Oscar Wilde I like. So, yeah, it's all over the book. I mean, all over the the place, but all the books, you know, were good.
0: You start with punk rock and you end with Proust. That's how we do it here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. If you want information on Walter Lure and the Waldos, go to walterlure.bandcamp.com. Everything you need to know is there. Buy the album. It's fantastic. He did a great job. It's fast, it's fun, it's catchy, um, it's really good. If you're on iTunes and you're feeling generous, subscribe to Bombshell Radio and subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, and leave us a review or two, leave us some stars, or five, it would mean the world to us if you took the time to do that, and uh, we thank you in advance for that. Now, if you want to drop me a line, do so, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com, or on Twitter, at EmbersEditor, tell me who you'd like for me to get on the program, and I will chase them down, I will chase them through the muddy streets of wherever they are, with a microphone, and a wad of money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's close things off with uh, Crazy Kids This is from the album Wacka Lacka What is it? I'm going to get it right this time And I'm going to say it with some soul Here, let's try it Wacka Lacka Loom Boppa Loom Bamboo God, that was worse Well, enjoy it Let me try it again Wacka Lacka Loom Boppa Loom oh, Forget it Just buy the record It's fantastic This is Crazy Kids I'll see you next week On Stereo Embers The Podcast
1: Yeah.